from aboard the battleship retention uh, i am scott nye i am david Bax. tyler smith is not here though you just heard him last week great episode i'm sure that was oh thank you yeah it was a lot of fun to do um and uh hopefully he'll be back uh well we try to do at least once a, a month while he's in his extended hospital stay you can by the way you can donate to the gofundme to help tyler that's uh, pinned to the top of the homepage at battleshipretention.com and also just follow him on 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 twitter um uh and facebook i don't know if he's on threads yet i don't know if he's gotten a blue sky invite not. yet i don't know if he's on what was the one we were all on that stopped working immediately that i've already forgotten the name Hive. Hive. yeah I already deleted it. I don't even have it anymore. Yeah, I should delete that. I certainly do not. I guess use I it. gave up on it. Um, oh, dang! Tyler is uh, about a little over a thousand dollars away from that hundred thousand dollar goal. So uh, get donated, oh, folks. Yeah, yeah. The finish line is in sight. It is. Uh, so check that out. Um, in in the meantime, what I can't I'm seeing Tyler this well by the time you're hearing this, so I've already seen him, but I'm seeing him this weekend. Um, and one thing I can't wait to talk to him about is uh jason bailey's uh article for gq that uh was just sort of like an editorial slash kind of just like explainer in a way of just like here's why david zasloff is so hated right now um and it was pitched to him from the editor at gq like with that that was the assignment of like write a piece on why david zasloff is the most hated man in hollywood he's like can do yeah, and so he did, and it was uh, luckily it's been archived, and you can still find it, like I, uh, you know, elsewhere on the internet, because um, it's as is often the case with Jason, not to like blow smoke up his ass, but like it's very well written. Yeah. Um, this so this just for those who somehow don't know, um, and it's fine if you don't you live in the real world, that's fine. Uh, although this is like gotten into the real world, which yeah. we'll get to in a second. Um, he wrote this piece, I guess. Shortly thereafter, now we've, we've since learned that David Zasloff's people at Warner Brothers Discovery reached out to GQ with some complaints. They sort of bodlerized the piece, um, and Jason asked them to take his byline off it because he didn't stand by their, their re-edited version, and then they said we don't run posts without bylines, so we'd have to take it down, and he said go ahead. <laughs> um, yeah. And they took it down, and then it came out that uh, Warner Brothers is currently developing a movie based on a GQ article from like 2018. And Will Welch, the one of the editors who was in charge of the decision of pulling down Jason Bailey's piece, is a producer on this movie that is being developed at Warner Brothers. Yeah, real messy, uh, and just so. I mean, if. If the point, to the extent that the point of Jason's original article was David Zasloff is bad at this, <laughs> he couldn't have like bolstered the argument bef- more than essentially Streisanding effect, Streisand affecting this thing to the point where like it has, I mean, like GQ is a mainstream publication, but this was still a niche like entertainment piece. Well, but and now, it's like one of like 50 pieces just like it that have been written over the last couple weeks. Right. But I guess Warner Brothers through Condé Nast, because GQ is owned by Condé Nast and Condé Nast has some sort of, so like Warner Brothers essentially has some pull over GQ. Oh, I no, guess. I get, I get why they were able to take action on this yeah. one. I'm just saying that like it, as further evidence that it would have just gotten lost in the shuffle, like yes, all these other gotten, pieces like, exactly. are just like 
little talked about for that day, kind of, but then everyone moves on. Yeah. But a but a a news publication pulling an article because of a complaint by the article subject, whether it's entertainment or not, that caught the attention of I think sort of the journalism sphere yeah. at large and now Washington Post and Politico are are uh, are covering this or at least pointing eyes toward it. Uh, and it's been a, uh, disaster for David Zaslav. <laughs> like, I feel like Jason, like has achieved more than he ever could have thought yeah. he would achieve by writing this. So I feel like so many more people are going to be aware of why David Zaslav is so hated than they were, than they would have if David Zaslav hadn't had this thing pulled. Um, and, uh, it's, just a, a rousing success and um um yeah it's worth noting that uh warner brothers said their complaints were around factual inaccuracies or that sort of thing but as jason pointed out you can view the two pieces side by side and the facts of the case aren't changed at all the only thing that's changed is the yeah. degree to which they're described and the language used to ascribe uh, yeah. meaning to those actions yeah they said that like um Oh, GQ didn't reach out to us to confirm the these these facts. But the, yeah. this thing, this wasn't like an investigative piece of reportage. Like this was an editorial, and all of the 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 incidents that Jason refers to in it are already public and documented. Like, yeah. he, I mean, he didn't make anything up. All that stuff is already a matter of public record. He just put it all in one place. Like I said, as a sort of explainer, this is why he is so hated yeah yeah it's uh i mean like i said it's prime stress and affecting and um i don't know i mean i i've heard mixed about whether or not like bad press really bothers people at zaslov's level because like they're still making money kind of thing but it does seem to really genuinely get under his skin which is uh kind of sweet <laughs> yeah he wouldn't have like reached out like this if it didn't get under his skin i, I would i would imagine I, yeah that, that's or speculation obviously yeah or maybe maybe might be a thing where he just has directed people to reach out about certain types of articles i don't know or if it like genuinely crossed his desk or not but at the very least um it also kind of goes hand in hand with uh some folks pointed out early on in the writer's strike that warner's put out those signs outside the studio that was like warning about excess noise to try to get people to stop yep. honking in favor of the writers um, yep. it's just like there's real thin skin all over warner brothers and in a town that uh is all based on perception um yeah, it, yeah. it's hard to imagine this not affecting zaslov's long-term viability at warner brothers but maybe that's wishful thinking but i mean he, yeah he is clearly very bad at this um yeah and uh uh, yeah, Warner, Warner Brothers, by the way, is in all of this time the only place I've passed picketers and honked because I don't, unlike you, I don't live in the heart of things like you do. Um, you know, I'm not like passing Paramount every day. I'm away to the grocery store or whatever. Uh, but um, yeah, I have passed Warner Brothers and I, I look for those signs. I think they've already taken them down or changed the, it's an oh, LED, good. right? So I think, I think yeah, they've changed yeah. the, the thing, um, which is too bad. I would have liked to have. So I would have felt even more happy about my honking. Sure. Um, also, just uh, to promote Jason a little bit, he also hosts a very good podcast called, I think, A Very Good Year. Um, that's just inviting guests on to talk about their favorite years of cinema. 
um, that I listen to fairly regularly. And highly recommend people check that out if you want some more of uh, Jason's whole deal. Yeah, yeah, big, big Bailey fans here. Uh, not George Bailey, although we're a fan of George Bailey too. Um, Aren't we all? Yeah. What other Baileys are there? But uh, there's got to be some other ones. Why don't you think of some while <laughs> I uh, pull up? Because I have an extra ad to read. Mm, I'm excited. We got. Um, what product am I standing behind this week? <laughs> uh, so. This week, this week is comedy sketches interspersed with weekend update style jokes about current events. And with the writer strike still going on, it's a great way to get your fix of topical comedy. Now, this is aimed at Angelinos, the people who will be who will be in the Los Angeles area um, uh, in the, over the next couple months. Tickets are fifteen dollars at the door and available at the theater's website. The theater is openfist.org or the theater's website is openfist.org at the Open Fist Theater Company. Uh, the show is booked for every Thursday at 8 p.m. through August 17th for the time being. If you know you show up at these shows, you uh, uh, could help extend their run of weekly topical news-based comedy at uh, this week, this week at the Open Fist Theater Company. They just recently did their 50th show, so they're going strong. Each show features a guest star from film, television, or local theater. Past guests include Jeremy Guskin, Craig Kakowski, and Mike McShane. Uh, the show features a rotating group of writers and performers who have studied at the Second City, Improv Olympic, UCB, Groundlings, and elsewhere. A uh, friend of the show, Dave Amiot, has been a contributing writer and will be in the cast on July 13th. That's this week. Uh, and important, this is, this is an important part because integrity is, is so important to Dave Amiot. He wanted us, David and Tyler and Scott to make sure to mention that this is a paid advertisement. We have not seen the show and cannot vouch for its quality, <laughs> but you should uh, definitely guess. Uh, but yeah, Dave wanted me to say that, that this is a paid ad. And I cannot have, I have not seen the show, but Dave is funny. I'm sure it's funny. Uh, Open Fist Theaters in Atwater Village. There's free part. There's a free parking lot two blocks south of the theater, or there's free street parking. So for tickets, again, go to openfist.org for tickets for this week, this week. Um, and then, of course, as usual, I, I have to tell you about tweakedaudio.com. Tweakedaudio.com is where you go for professional quality earbuds in a variety of stylish styles and colorful, colorful colors. Uh, they look great. They sound great. I use them each and every day of my life. You know what I was listening to today? I have I no idea. To, I decided to uh, jump back into like uh, um, some memories from childhood and listen to Peter and the Wolf. Uh, Sergei. Never really, yeah, never listened to them. Prokofiev. Uh, no, Peter and the Wolf, the. Uh, the opera, oh, right right or the is that what it is because it's it's not an opera because it's there's no singing in it yeah kind of a it's a symphony based on the story of peter and the wolf yeah um and i listened to it sergey prokofiev listened to it today it took me back to definitely watching in like elementary school peter and the wolf like a cartoon set to the music um anyway so uh Sounded great at my tweakedaudio.com earbuds that are available at a low, low price at tweakedaudio.com. But if you use the offer code pretension at checkout, you get one third off that low, low price and no shipping charges. So please go to tweakedaudio.com and use the offer code pretension. 
Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Scott, we're back. Hello. Let's get into it, shall we? We're halfway through the year, and this is... Past it at this point. Yes. Okay. Thanks. (laughs) Um, This is where uh, we take a break and look back at the half year so far and uh, count down our personal top five, again, of the year so far. Um, This always ends up being an interesting episode in retrospect because you know, so many of the things that are expected to be contenders for awards or year end lists, whatever, have their releases weighted toward the end of the year that, um, uh, I always feel like it's a real motley crew, a real ragtag bunch of movies at the halfway point. And it's, it's fairly rare that maybe one movie from my top five of the halfway point, ends up on my top 10 for I the think year. I had three last year. I know oh, I had wow. at least two. Wow. Um, I can't remember if there was a third. Um, yeah, but I, uh, again, I'm going to keep dropping names and bragging. I, I just got accredited for TIFF. So, um, Jason Bailey, watch yeah. out. David's going to be there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and, uh, uh, so who knows? I'm, uh, everything I see at TIFF might blow these movies out of the water, but I do have a kind of, uh, yeah, uh, a, a strange, varied list. And I will also, this is the listeners get ready to get mad at my OCD, but I'm counting like 2023 native movies. So like movies that played festivals in 2022 and opened theatrically in 2023 I'm not counting. I might call, I might call those out at the end as a kind of like honorable mention. And some of those might even be better than what are on my list. But, um, these are movies that are sort of that premiered and released in the first half of 2023. And as a result of that, as often happens with this list, um, all American movies. Yeah. I was going to say four out of my five, uh, picks are movies that premiered last year and got released this year. Uh, so this will be a fun, varied list. Oh, yeah. Um, why don't you kick things off? All right, sure. Your number five. Uh, my number five is Charlotte LeBron's debut film, Falcon Lake. Um, this is based on a graphic novel by Bastien Vivez. Um, it is a coming-of-age story about a 13-year-old boy who's going on vacation with his mother. Um, they're staying with... Uh, um, friends of the family, like it's her, her mom's like old friend kind of situation. They, he and uh, her mom's friend's daughter kind of grew up together, but now they're kind of at a point in life where they're at very different ages. So he's 13 and she's 16, which, you know, you can imagine in past years might not be that big difference, but the development years and teen years uh, 
stakes some pretty wide disparities. Um, so he's still kind of in childhood mode and she's very much in her rebellious teenage phase. And um, there's kind of a weird haunting quality hanging over the film. She's constantly telling these ghost stories that aren't logged anywhere um, and which she's either completely making up or which are actually happening to her. And uh, Charlotte LeBron films this in such a way that it's LeBron, by the way. Ah, son of a bitch. Uh, thank you, though. Um, sure, the LeBon films in such a way that there always is a sense that something supernatural might be happening and just around the corner. Um, there's a part where they're out with some older boys and um, one of them, like, pretends to get, like, caught in a lake in, by, like, some creature in the lake. But we're still, like, on edge for something haunting to be happening. Like, is this going to be the thing that's finally exploding out? Um and something eventually kind of does emerge, but I don't want to give that away okay. because it's done in such a really cagey, interesting way. Um, for the most part, it's just really about uh, one of my favorite subjects. You know, there's tons of movies about how great it is to be a kid and how free it is and getting your first love and all that kind of stuff. Uh, I, I love a movie that's about how terrifying it is to be a kid, <laughs> especially those teenage years where you're starting to get a little bit of independence and you're kind of out in the world, but the world ends up being quite scary in a lot of ways. So naturally this 13 year old boy has quite the crush on this 16 uh, year old girl and has no idea what to do with those feelings. And she's constantly kind of like, half egging him on half teasing him about it. And um, so he's just mostly terrified throughout the whole film. And that's kind of reflected in the kind of general supernatural vibe going on outside of it. And yeah, it was a film that I hadn't heard of at all until I saw a trailer for it when I was seeing something else at the Lumiere cinema. And I was instantly pretty curious about it. And I was quite captivated by watching it. Um, and it was very impressive debut. Charlotte Bond is apparently an actress um, whose work. Yeah, I was I, just looking her up. I recall. I don't think I've seen her in anything. Um, the film's in French, but it's a Canadian production. So you also okay. get a little well, bit of interesting. They speak, kind of, they speak French in Canada as well. I, this is what I'm getting to, David. You also get some okay. interesting culture clash where uh, the main kid uh, his family almost exclusively speaks French. Uh, the girl's family speaks a mixture of French and English and kind of the other kids they meet up with um, around this community, mostly speak English. And so there's also this kind of like outsider status that he has within this community. That's also uh, really well kind of teased out. Um, so yeah, very, very impressive debut and my number five. Yeah, I really, uh, I think based on, either your tweet or maybe you just telling me about it. I really wanted to see it and I actually had intended to see it, but it was, um, I had gone to Philly in New York and came back and I had planned to go see it the next night at the Lemley in Santa Monica, I think is where it was. And, uh, ended up having so much work to catch up on for being out for a ah. week that I, by the time I looked up, I was like, Oh shit, the movie started 10 minutes ago. I'm, I guess I'm not going to make it. Indeed. Um, but yeah, uh, Charlotte Lebon as an actress, the only, uh, the only thing I have seen that she's in is Fresh, which is a movie that I did not like, and I don't remember her in. I think she might just be one of the other uh, kidnapped women in, in that movie. Um, I did not see it. Yeah, well, you're not... It's about it. kidnapping, you say? Yeah, yeah. Oh, she was apparently in uh, The Walk, the um, Robert Zemeckis Which movie. Which I never but, saw. Uh, good movie. Um, and I actually never saw The Walk or Man on Wire. Role. 
um, yeah. based on Wikipedia. So I guess I did see her in that, but I do not remember anything about it. Just thinking about either of those movies. Like, I think I saw a trailer for Man <laughs> on Wire before it came out and my palms got all sweaty. So it was like, I'm probably not going to see these movies yeah uh, anytime soon all right so number four for me number five um number five for me sorry um yeah three of my five are movies that i saw at sundance this year uh so we're kicking off with nicole hall of centers you hurt my feelings um good which, film not on my list but good film. yeah yeah uh you know we were talking i think on a on the Patreon, I think that that has posted most recently. Uh, hey, guys, if you're not a patron, sign up at patreon.com slash battleship retention. Two, five, or ten dollars a month, depending on how much you want, and you get more stuff, uh, and you help out us, and you help out Tyler. So, patreon.com slash battleship retention. Anyway, we were talking about the movie No Hard Feelings, which I have not seen and which you did not like. Um, and uh, also has feelings in the title that wasn't that i just realized that that wasn't even the, the point that i was making but the idea yeah, when of I, a actually certain... quick story on that when i uh tweeted about my negative feelings on no hard feelings somebody was like oh not usually a um oh shit now i can't think of the um hall hall feelings. Yeah, the not, yeah she was like not not usually a hall center fan and i was like what's going on here <laughs> um yeah. So, uh, but I, I know a big part of the reason I think people are, as we talked about, some people are rallying around um, uh, No Hard Feelings is that it's a certain kind of comedy that we see less of, especially in theatrical release. Um, and I think You Hurt My Feelings is another kind that is like, it doesn't have any like broad comic conceits. It has a sitcom type of comic conceit. For sure. And it's a, movie that is about real people in the real world that is that also pretty much doesn't let a single scene go by with at least uh, at least one big laugh often more um so that kind of like grown-up oriented comedy uh is also something that um i that i miss and that i love about nicole hall of center and especially about julie Louis dreyfus i mean i think uh, what I've said about you hurt my feelings uh, almost every time I, it comes up is that as far as Hall of Center and Dreyfus go, I still prefer enough said. Yeah. But um, as a showcase for Julia Louis Dreyfus's talents, um, I think this movie and her partnership with Nicole Hall of Center just do it great. You, you know, she um, gets huge laughs out of the smallest line uh, reading reads, including there's one. <laughs> There's one moment that's a very emotional moment where she's crying because her and her and her husband like tries to defend himself and she like crying says like oh okay then yeah <laughs> it's like it's one of the biggest laughs in the movie for me um you've also got the great Michaela Watkins Tobias Menzies is hilarious Jeannie Berlin has a couple of scenes and you can't ever go wrong by putting Jeannie Berlin in your movie I wonder what she thinks of David Zasloff that character because she's a big <laughs> She's a big TCM fan. Yeah. Uh, in in the movie, uh, although she thinks it's TMC. Right. And then when they correct her TCM, she says, why would it be called the channel movie? <laughs> uh, see, this has been it's been six months and I still remember this movie so well. Um, and a lot of little lines like that. And that's the the sign of a of a good comedy and just a, a reminder that you don't have to have 
a big broad concept, you know, um, to have a good comedy. We, we used to have more comedies for adults, but then Woody Allen ruined it by being a creep. <laughs> what? <laughs> there are larger forces at play than, uh, just Woody Allen. Yeah. But I guess I feel like when I think of the type of comedy I'm thinking of, which is yeah. like New York professionals and their like, uh, petty, like relationship problems. Like, I feel like Woody Allen was at one point kind of the standard bearer for this kind of comedy. His movies could be character based and honest and emotional, but also incredibly funny. And I guess that's maybe the call of hall, hall of center is with, with a movie like you hurt my feelings, which is a New York based movie is kind of filling that, that hole. I don't know. Who do you think of when you think of that kind of comedy? Oh, I definitely think of Woody Allen, but you made it sound like, um, with his downfall meant all of this type of movie is on a downfall, yeah. which is an, an interesting proposition. Like could, if you were still making movies, well, I mean, he is, but if you were still making movies and they were getting wider releases, would it have a greater effect on the larger box office? Would more people see these kind of movies period, or are we maximizing the audience we can get out of them because there's nobody Allen movies around? Um, I mean, I certainly wish Nicole Hall of Center made movies as fast as Woody Allen did, at the very least. Um, yeah. But perhaps uh, she doesn't need to. Um, do you know what I uh, learned recently is that um, a, rainy do- a rainy day in New York is apparently just quietly on Peacock. I'm not surprised. I mean, I rented it on VOD, I don't know, years ago, whenever like it came out. Um, so it's been oh. out there. So's um Rifkin's Festival which is probably is it really the, yeah so i rented that okay. last summer i think it posted um it's probably the worst woody allen movie i mean it's really bad um really but I mean, there's it, some contenders no Hollywood i know. ending is a real stinker i so i haven't seen that i mean it's not like i've seen every woody allen movie but of the ones i've seen Rifkin's festivals way up there but frustratingly it has an amazing ending that like kind of could be a capper on woody allen's whole career <laughs> um so if you were to stop making movies and more people saw Rickman's festival, this would be like what they would lead with in like his obituary. But um, he's in production on yet another film. So it will kind of uh, remain a weird outlier. Um, anyway, um, the point is you hurt my feelings. I, oh, go ahead. Yeah. I was just going to talk more about it in New York and Woody Allen in general. Sure. When Natalie on. and I were in, were in Paris in 2019, a rainy day in New York was playing theatrically and there was a part of me that just like perversely was like, I'm not going to get another chance to see this in the theater. Maybe I should go. And Natalie was like, I'm not even spending 90 minutes of my vacation watching a Woody Allen movie. So we didn't go. Um, I also like, I can't remember how it, I know you bailed early on difficult people. So I don't know if you got to, uh, the, I don't even know if I started on difficult people. Oh, you said you didn't. You didn't like it. I know I watched um, a couple of episodes, but I can't remember if they, oh, okay. they were like the first couple or if I just kind of tuned in when because I Julie watched it consistently. I don't know oh, if I just okay. watched a couple of episodes with her kind of thing. Well, there's a storyline where Julie gets cast in a, Woody Allen does within the show a second Amazon miniseries after Crisis and Six Scenes. Um, uh, his it's pissed as his attempt to get TV right on the show. And I do appreciate the difficult people's like line of attack. Isn't like what a creep Woody Allen is, but all about how tiny he is. And there's, 
there's a whole thing where they have to stop down production because no one can find Woody Allen. And it turns out he like curled up and went to sleep inside of a like shoe or something. <laughs> that's, that's a good bit. I, now I, now Very I want to watch difficult people. Yeah. Uh, Crisis in the 16th, by the way, that is a good show. Um, oh, really? Yeah. Rain day in New York. Also not very good. Uh, it would have been a waste of time to go watch it. Um, oh. yeah, you hurt my feelings. Uh, it didn't quite hit for me as big as it did for you. I liked it, but it kind of never quote quite rose above NPR chuckle for me kind of thing. Mm. Um, but, um, I still really like all the performances and I mean, most especially Julia Louis-Dreyfus and the husband's twice Menzies, right? But Tobias Menzies, yeah. Yeah, he's really great. Um, and, oh, no, the ones that got genuine laughs out of me was all the David Cross and Amber Tamlin scenes, which yeah. were so funny. Yeah, just Tobias Menzies plays a therapist, and they're and, uh, a couple who are in therapy together. Um, and yeah, very funny stuff. She accuses him of hating women. He says, no, I just hate you. <laughs> Yeah. Um, and even but, uh, when they get off screen uh, and like they're sending them letters to get their money back from all their therapy. <laughs> um, and then one of his other patients is played by uh, an actor comedian named Zach Cherry. Uh, and I like him a lot too. He's the one who like, every time he like signs off or leave, you heard, yeah. hear him muttering like fucking useless. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Uh, we spent too long on you hurt my feelings for something that is only on one of our lists. So what's yeah. your number four? Uh, might be on your list too. Are you there? God is me, Margaret. Yeah, we'll get to that later. All right. So my number four, uh, I'm going to guess it's not on your list. Cause I think you were a little more mixed than I was on this. Uh, my number four is Wes Anderson's asteroid city. Yes. I am much more mixed on it, but you go first. Uh, I, I definitely have my, um, hesitations about this like i think there are moments that remind me of what i don't like about early wes anderson um where um some of the emotional beats feel like they're a little forced they're like he's pushing for them a, mm -hmm. a little bit um and that's something that i so that i that never worked with me in rushmore and even a lot of royal tenenbaums um, it started to get better for me with life aquatic and then, you know, uh, fantastic Mr. Fox. And I still haven't, have not seen Darjeeling. I know that's one that, uh, people say I would like, but, um, I'd be curious so because that, that one's like the most early Wes Anderson to me. It's like the last one he made in okay. kind of his early phase, but it's like really, he dives into that version of his aesthetic. So I'd be curious mm -hmm. to hear what you thought. Um, but, uh, um, yeah, so I, I do have some minor hesitations, uh, but even those are kind of helped along by the fact that like, um, Jason Schwartzman is so at this point, like so keyed in to Wes Anderson that, uh, I, I feel like he's selling moments like when he, um, when he not, I don't know if people understand the conceit. It's very hard to explain. I know. But when he shows up to essentially surprise audition for Edward Norton and he like has that little speech, like I thought that was, that was, uh, uh, just the cat's pajamas. I love that scene. Um, the scene with him and Margot Robbie, like I wanted to like, but it, that felt like that, like 
here's the emotional climax yeah. of the movie and it, it felt a little forced anyway but i'm talking about what i didn't like too much what i did like is that uh i like how much he has as i said about french dispatch like it feels like the more wes anderson he gets the more i like him um and he's so like disappeared into his own thing in a good way um that that like despite every apparently lame tiktokers attempt to make their own version of a wes anderson thing no one else can do what he does he's uh completely created his own world and and his own uh language and and outlook and so this is a movie that is not only very wes anderson i think there's something kind of about not maybe not just him but like in the same way that I talked about the Fablemans being about how difficult it is to be super talented, I feel like Asteroid City is about what what I took away from it is this idea. It's this picture of people who come as close to understanding the beauty of the universe and are as keyed in to the beauty of the universe as you can be and it just makes them all more sad just the more they're aware of beauty the sadder they are um and uh i also love that it's a uh now that i'm after 17 years almost 18 years actually uh yeah pretty much 18 years of living in in the southwest i uh have uh developed my own affinity for the desert especially the strange part of it um out out here where um it feels like there are fewer barriers between the empirical and the mystical or whatever and and it feels like it's a place where you can sort of like come right up against the cosmos and and um i i love that it's a that it's a desert movie it doesn't look like um any other desert movie i've I've, I've ever seen uh and it's um yeah full of of, of great performances and and big laughs and and moments that moved me uh it might not there's a good chance but number four at halfway point that it won't be on my top 10 but um i'm it's a movie that i'm very glad exists because no one no one else could have made it yeah i i'm with you on the humor of it and i i did appreciate kind of the cosmic angle of it um one of the reasons it doesn't look like any desert movie ever seen is because it was shot on a soundstage in spain they just built all that shit which is pretty impressive yeah um i i think where i run up against it and why and i think this is kind of a dividing line in what you and i might appreciate in wes anderson since you like his later stuff more than i do and i tend to like the earlier stuff is his movies to me are at their best when they're um kind of in conversation with or even in conflict with his desire for a sort of neatness and cleanness um, contrasted with the real world elements around him. And there's an extent to which that's present here because it's about people trying to maintain order in the face of something inexplicable and strange and wild. And also for the audience, very, very funny. Um, yeah. But uh, it's just, it's kind of lacking any of that touchstone to the real world and kind of touchstone to like base human impulses. Like a huge thing I love in Wes Anderson's movies is his characters often reach a point where they can't express themselves and just have to resort to just 
cursing and other forms of vulgarity. And this is a pretty clean, uh, unvulgar film, with the exception of a very quick blurred out uh, nude shot. Um, but even that's pretty uh, tempered. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah, I mean, like I said, the humor did work for me. There's something else I was going to say on that kind of same tack. Oh, just the, I think the film suffers a little bit in being a little overstuffed um, with characters. Sometimes you get some great side bits. Like I love the little musical bit with Maya Hawk's uh, class. Um, yep. But sometimes it felt like he was just writing scenes. I think Tilda Swinton's character is especially vulnerable here. Just writing scenes because he felt like he needed to justify getting the such great actors in for such small roles. Um, and so some of that was kind of losing track of the central concerns of the piece for me. Um, so yeah, I, I'm, I'm definitely pretty mixed on it, but that's not to say mm-hmm. I don't like it. I did like it. I just didn't love it. Uh, yeah, I, um, as far as the overstuffedness of it, um, yeah, it's interesting that, um, You've got Hong Chao and she doesn't even get a close up. Yeah, right. <laughs> She's in one scene and it's all like uh, you know, wide essentially. Um but uh yeah, the singing scene when Natalie and I saw it together and we were walking back to the car, um and we both like we were talking about who our favorite character was and we both said Montana, the uh oh, sure. the, the singing cowboy guy, played by Rupert Friend, who um is a a uh, very talented actor that I knew first from Homeland, but he's also in the death of Stalin. He's Stalin's like fuck up son, like drunk fuck up son. Um, and he's been in a, in a number of, of, of things. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, uh, so I like Rupert friend. Yeah. I can't remember. I was going to say something else about Hong Chao, but I can't remember, but she's I think my favorite. Yeah. I don't know if it's my favorite character, but I'm constantly, uh, grateful to Wes Anderson for, casting adrian brody in major roles uh i think he's really really great in this in a fairly mm-hmm. small role but a pretty pivotal one i'd say to the overall tenor of the piece yeah. yeah um and the other big laugh for me was when um it's just after the town ta- I, I guess i'm being a little cagey about the central kind of concern of the film because it's still i don't know if it, tons of people have seen it but um it's just after the town's kind of like released what they've seen to the rest of the world and um jeffrey wright who plays this like upper military brass guy is like we just received a communication from the president there's kind of this big pause he gets the envelope he opens it he just goes he's furious he just throws the message across the room (laughs) i laughed so hard at that yeah oh that's great uh all right what's your number three uh, my number three is, I'd say, the latest film from, but at this rate he works at, certainly not the latest film from Hong Sang-soo, um, but the, I think the most recent one to get distribution in the U.S. anyway, uh, is Walk Up. Um, as with most of his recent films, he is the writer, director, producer, cinematographer, editor, and compose- uh, uh, Composer, composer on this uh, film, um, which I haven't seen since AFI Fest last November, so I don't have the strongest memory for the details of it, but I do have a very strong memory of the feeling it kind of evoked. Um, it's about, as with most Hong Sang Soo movies, a successful, semi-successful film director who's grappling with various elements of his life, um, this time via a walk-up apartment building. Um, that kind of in a series of stories goes floor by floor through the building 
um, and then maybe kind of wraps back around on itself in almost an MC Escher like structure. Um, the whole thing is really beguiling and has the genuine feeling of a dream. And sometimes people say like, it's dreamlike to just explain surreality. Um, but that kind of stuff, like David Lynch films or like the dream sequences on Sopranos never really felt like a dream to me because they were always, they always kind of point out how unnatural they are. The thing about walk up is it feels completely natural until like suddenly you're like, wait a minute, this, but that was first, then it's not, that doesn't quite fit there because the person was back there. <laughs> it, it starts to add up in a way that doesn't quite make sense in the way that to me, dreams really do where like, it makes sense for a good while of them, but maybe when you finally wake up or you get a certain way down the dream, you kind of have lost track of how you got there. Um, so yeah, I, I really, really enjoy this. I really want to revisit it um, in part so I can describe it better. Should it stay on my list for the end of the year? Um, but this was the most I'd like to Hong Sang Soo movie since probably um, Hotel by the River, which was four years ago, three, three or four years That's ago. Crazy. Um which, you know, for most filmmakers would be their last film for him. <laughs> it's like five or six films in between those two points. Yeah. Um, yeah. Most of which I've, I've really, really liked, but this one really uh, caught my attention. And I know everyone has like, they're like, this is Hong Sang Su's best in years film. Um, so it gets tough to kind of track those recommendations for most people as novelist film. And so don't just take my word for it. But um, this to me is a real standout endeavor and, and kind of like, harkens back to some of his past work, which was more focused around like structure and repetition. Um, this has the same kind of interest in that without being so dogmatic or diagramic about it. Um, this kind of embraces some of the more uh, naturalist and almost surreal tendencies in building up since I'd say on the beach at home alone at night, or I guess really yourself and yours um, while uh, kind of harkening back to some of those earlier impulses. Um, so yeah, he just continues to be such a fascinating filmmaker. And every time I think that like, I'm going to get sick of him, I guess, because he works so often, he ends up surprising me in some really refreshing way. So mm -hmm. grateful for that. Yeah. I'm every time you mention a movie that I had intended to see at AFI Fest and couldn't because of a major life event that got in the way, I just get so frustrated. Between well, there's this, one more coming up. This and yeah, then I won't say the other one, but yeah, like, and then yeah. So uh, not going to say anymore. All right. Um, number three for me, um, and the second of three that I saw at Sundance, even though it actually came out in theaters like less than a week after it played Sundance, Brandon Cronenberg's Infinity Pool. I just saw this um, yesterday. Uh, but it's not on your list. Uh, no, <laughs> which um, I'm uh, fine with. It's definitely nowhere near. It's not as good as Possessor. Uh, no. I'll say I, I I loved Possessor, but um, I still appreciate just like I talked about, like Asteroid City being so Wes Anderson. This is clearly like so Brandon Cronenberg's kind of like obsessions preoccupations maybe uh about sort of um the mutability of flesh and identity and pain and pleasure and uh various bodily fluids um all 
you know, mixing together. Uh, and also like with possessors, a very, very dark comedy. Um, uh, and some just like flat out comedy. Mia Goth is very funny. Um, there's a part at the beginning. So this won't be giving anything away where Mia Goth reveals that her, she's an actress, but her specialty is being in those infomercials where it's like, there has to be a better way. Yeah. Like, fumbling doing easy tasks like putting things away or opening a bag or whatever and so they ask her to demonstrate at dinner and so she like uh fails at cutting a roll with a butter knife (laughs) yeah it's so good it's so funny um all that stuff is is funny but then uh yeah the movie gets very uh confrontational and upsetting and and uh dark and bloody but like it's um i think i said this on another podcast another episode maybe um that like the sexual content of it isn't very titillating but some of the violence potentially is um uh and so that's again going back to that thing i'm saying about brandon kurenberg is he's taking seemingly opposing things like pleasure and pain and uh um, mix them together, which is not like novel. Obviously, there's sadomasochism. People have done this for a long time, but I find something really refreshing about how unselfconscious he seems uh, uh, about it, and how eager and, and giddy he is to 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 push these things. You know, when I, I saw the uh, press industry screening, I saw at Sundance, like walking out of the theater, there were a lot of people who like did not like the movie, um, and I was like. Yeah, I bet, I bet he's okay with that. If people didn't like it for those reasons, I think he'd have to be making that kind of movie. Yeah, um, yeah. So I, uh, I really enjoyed it just as a, as a ride. Yeah, it's ways. definitely that. Um, and Mia Goth is fantastic. It it sounds like we're dancing around the actual uh, plot of the film, so I can't give away my favorite Mia Goth line. Um, but there's a lot of stuff that's on the page <laughs> wouldn't really have much uh i guess kind of song do it that she really enlivens and makes really really engaging um my biggest issue is that i just am not sold on alexander skarsgård as a leading man this was my big problem with the northman as well um this film at least there's a point to him being kind of empty behind the eyes but um that's not enough to get me all the way i, I just i don't know i i can feel him taking direction rather than kind of responding to the emotion of a scene um, so I was kind of at sea through him and a lot of the writing beyond that, I, I just found kind of underlining the point of the film a lot. Um, so yeah, I was, I was a little let down by infinity pool because I like possessor so much. Um, there's something kind of strange about the fact that Brandon Cronenberg is most famous for being David Cronenberg's son and making vaguely David Cronenberg esque films, but all of his films are also about like essentially like absorbing someone's DNA and transmuting that into a new thing. Um, that's like kind uh, of strange yeah. given the fact of that's his filmmaking yeah. and lineage. Yeah. Yeah. Um, no, I'll go back to what uh, I'll say what you said that it Alexander Skarsgård's I like him more than you do, but I understand what you're saying about his um, lack of star power. Maybe but I think the fact that he's playing a poser who's in over his head, I, it worked for me more than it worked for you, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. 
right to your limitations. Right. That's what I say. <laughs> what around my number two? Uh, yeah, your number two. Yeah. My number two is uh, Rebecca Zlotowski's other people's children, um, which um, is, I think I've seen all of her films at this point. Um, I've been a fan of hers. I really liked uh, Grand Central it was the first film I saw from her, um, which was a really ambitious uh, like nuclear love story about uh, people like sort of falling in love and mostly falling into a sexual relationship, like outside a nuclear plant. And the film was kind of like, have they absorbed some nuclear energy? And is that why they're boning so much? Um, at least that's how I remember it. It was just a really strange film. And then, but I really loved uh, Planetarium, which is the film she made with Natalie Portman. That's hugely ambitious and um, probably a little too much for most people, which is why it got terrible reviews. Uh, but I really latched onto it. Um, she got some more fans with An Easy Girl, which was the very last film I saw before the COVID shutdown. Um but and so it kind of had a dicey distribution pattern. It was a Netflix film that kind of barely got noticed. But those who saw it um, really kind of took to it. And then this film, she seems to have really sunk in finally with uh, critics and the various tastemakers of the film industry. And uh, like I said, rightly so. I, I think it's the best film yet. It's uh, at least semi-autobiographical. Virginia Afira plays a woman who's around 40 or so, maybe late 30s, who... Um, just through various trials and tribulations, hasn't really settled down um, a significant other and hasn't yet had a child. Um, and that's kind of really getting to her. She recognizes the biological limitations she's about to hit and fears that she'll never really be able to start a family. Um, when she meets a man, um, uh, I think his name's Ali, um, who has a young daughter um, and she really falls for him. And as she gets introduced to his family, really uh, takes to his daughter as well. And she seems to really take to hers um, in turn. The daughter's played by Callie, uh, lot of last name here, Ferreira Goncalves, um, who gives maybe the most naturalistic child performance I've ever seen. Usually movie kids are like so annoying and so precocious, but this <laughs> is just a very normal, like four or five-year-old girl who's like always a little distracted, always a little spacey, very earnest in the way she gives love, but also easily put off um, by the most random circumstances. Um, and Zlotowski's very smart about diving into all this, about like how meaningful this relationship can be. But Virginie Afira is also recognizing how tenuous her position in this family is, how like in spite of the fact that she formed this very close bond, she has no you know legal right to this to someone who's effectively becoming her daughter um and might not have a permanent bond with ali as the relationship goes on so even though they all mean a lot to each other it could go away in an instant and virginia if you're i also just saw um Revoir Paris, which she also stars in, which is about um, a woman who's dealing with post-traumatic stress disorder after surviving a um, kind of like shooting spree kind of incident. Um, and similar in both films, she has to communicate a lot just behind her eyes without um, being given the text to do so. And she carries that so well, um, kind of the anti-Alexander Skarsgård, where she's able to hold nothing in a scene that's dramatically there, but carry across so much drama within it. Um, and there's a few scenes, especially towards the end that are completely reliant on her just seeing something across the room and Zlotowski's compositions, the story to that point and a fear's performance 
telling us um, what's going on there that really I found so, so moving. Um, so yeah, I was very, very into this film. It, it kind of hit the similar tone as last year's One Fine Morning. Mia Hansen loved so much. It was in my top three, I think. Um, and yeah, I, I could I could watch these kind of movies all day. So this is very much my vibe and very good form of it. Yeah, this is my first Rebecca Zlotowski film. Uh, and uh, yeah, this is where that um, rule I said beforehand comes into play because this is a it premiered at festivals yeah. in 2022. Uh, but yeah, this movie is better than anything that is on my top five right now. <laughs> uh, it is my favorite movie that I saw at Sundance, but it, um, it had it, it had played other festivals before, so I didn't uh, count it. It's it's uh, it's beautiful. I want to see some of her other films. I can see how, despite this being a in many ways a classical romantic melodrama. Um, I can see how this is a woman who has made things that have been like you said about planetarium too much for people. There's a boldness to her filmmaking. There's, um, there's a thing where, uh, there'll be like Iris transitions in this movie, but they're not like, they're not like straight on. They like, yeah, they kind of like wander over the frame. uh, Yeah. Like kind of a regularly move. They're, uh, really interesting. Um, yeah, I thought the movie was was very beautiful. Um, and uh, the guy who plays Ali, Rashdi Zem, had a good year because he was also in uh, Louis Grell's The Innocents, um, which is also a very good movie. Very good movie. Highly recommend. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, all right. So my number two, uh, we're on to what was, I think, your number four. Uh, Kelly Freeman Craig's Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret. Um, I... Uh, for better or worse, I had not read the book uh, going Same. in. Um, and, uh, I, but, I, but I think it's knowing this is Kelly Freeman Craig's second feature after um, Edge of 17. Uh, and so obviously I understand that a lot of the credit for this story goes to Judy Bloom. I don't want to take that away from her, but I think a lot of the credit for the telling also goes to Kelly Freeman Craig because, um, in both films, she has proven herself to be, um, so uninterested in judging her characters. Um, and, uh, one of the things about, are you there? God, as me, Margaret is that on the page, there are certain things that like feel like the coming of age tropes, but I love, uh, and I, and I'm forgetting uh, her name. But I love that the mean girl in the movie, mm-hmm. Kelly Freeman Craig in the movie, they they love her too, and they yeah. and like they're sympathetic towards her too. And um, yeah, I need to look up the that actress because it's low key one of my favorite performances of the year is that mean girls uh performance uh l graham is the actress the character's name is nancy wheeler um and uh so there's just something so patient and beautiful and human about the telling of the story that also as with you hurt my feelings also has a lot of laughs in it without sacrificing the honesty um of of the psychology and of of the emotions um i was gonna steal a line from you because i think you were gonna say this too maybe i will uh best rachel mcadams has ever been yeah i I agree um yeah and yeah yeah, on the humor 
part it's so funny and um i think in terms of like yeah you can assign a lot of this to judy bloom but it's also hard to carry that dual tonality in a film and i think like that was my big issue with no hard feelings it's like they're trying to make a comedy with a lot of drama in it and pulling off neither particularly well this is one that like there can literally be a laugh one minute and then 30 seconds later, something very, very moving or vice versa. And some of it's in mm-hmm. the performances. Some of it's in the editing. There's some funny just cuts to, uh, you know, people kind of leave a scene on one note, enter it on another um, that always works. And the performances are all working really well in harmony, especially the fact that she's working with girls who are around the age she's depicting, you know, they're, I'm mm-hmm. guessing they're all in the 10 to 12 range. Um, that's a tough age to exist in, let alone uh, perform in a movie and let alone be really good and naturalistic in a movie. And all the girls are um, Abby Ryder, Fortson in the lead role, most especially. Um, but yeah, definitely Rachel McAdams finest hour for me. Um, and I've always liked her. I don't know why she's never really kind of sunk in. I get, maybe she's just never had the right project. Um, to kind of get her to the higher profile I think she deserves to be in. But this kind of takes advantage of all of her gifts and gives her a new venue in which to put them. You know, she's entering the age of being a mom role. And she, you know, it's not like she hasn't played mothers before, but um, entering the age where she can be a mother to, you know, a a young girl who can be the protagonist of a movie instead of just like an infant or a very small child or something. Um, And... Yeah, it's one that I it's tough. It was tough to see that this didn't hit the box office because it's such an audience pleasing movie and benefits so much from seeing with other people because it just makes you feel better. I think about I mean, it's such an old fashioned thing to say, but it's kind of an old fashioned movie in that way. It makes you feel better about humanity, about people in your community and um it's the kind of thing that movies used to be able to pull off much more reflexively that um, is so rare and which I'm so grateful to have Kelly Freeman Craig around. And I hope she gets to continue to work, even though yeah. neither of her movies has really hit. Um, and I hope that uh, especially, for I mean, Rachel not in the Adams, moment. Yeah, it's, it's true, but, but I, 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 I feel like edge of 17, like has legs and like with, and, and people, people remember that movie and, and especially people younger than, than us, younger than we, I should say grammatically. Um, <laughs> remember that movie so uh, i don't know what what that counts for in david zaslav's hollywood but uh uh, i do think that edge of 17 has stuck around in the consciousness that's the question right it's like can films have legs anymore there's no home video so you're not you know getting a bump of dvd sales it's like does it count if more people stream it on netflix anymore um somebody was tweeting about this recently with like the disney movies getting shut off disney plus like there's really no avenue for something to become a cult hit anymore to have that second wind of revenue that made Mm. fight club an eventual hit or made office space an eventual hit like all that stuff that home video really bolstered um just gets harder and harder to push through in the market um but yeah, but I wanted to say one more thing about Rachel McAdams, just to be, uh, look, you're you're going to be the one who is uh, raining on the No Hard Feelings Parade. So not to be out contrarian, <laughs> uh, I'm going to point out that um, Game Night never meant as much, like never hit as much with me as I think it was supposed to, as it did with so many other people. Um, 
I, but uh, it's not bad. It's quite good. And I do think Rachel McAdams has um, a couple of the best scenes in it. She has the, the scene where she's really uh, removing the bullet from Jason Bateman's leg yeah. is maybe the best scene in the movie. And then also her reaction spoilers for game night when the dude gets sucked into the plane turbine yeah. and, she, and she goes, yes. Oh, he died. <laughs> Iconic for a reason. Um, I think about that all the time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm actually with you on game night. I, I liked it, but I, it, I didn't love it. Yeah. But I want to see, um, I, I hear good things about the Dungeons and Dragons movie that the same guys it's good. made. I mean, it's kind of okay. like the same thing as Game Night. Like, like, I enjoyed it a lot. It's not obviously one of my five movies of the year so far. And it's not even on my runners up. But well, I don't um, know. I was, we haven't gotten to your number one. So I, it could have been the Dungeons true. and Dragons movie. Yeah. Twist. <laughs> All right. What is your number one? Uh, my number one is, of course, um, for listeners who have been consistent with the podcast, uh, Laura Citarella's Trinke Laquin. I can never say that damn movie title correctly. I think it's Trinke Laquin. I don't know. Okay. I'm not Argentinian. Um, I wouldn't know. I didn't get to see it. Yeah, well, you missed out on people semi-frequently saying the title of the film, which vaguely helped. Um, so this is, uh, it's a very interesting film. It's a semi-sequel to a film she made in 2011, called Ostende, um, which we talked about when we did our Argentinian films episode. Um, okay. And which I think you can seek out through legal means. I can't remember if that was one that I downloaded or not, um, but it's not necessary to see that film before seeing this one. It's mainly that uh, Laura Paredes is the main character here. We'll get to that in a second. It's more or less plays the same character that she does in Ostende. Um, you can you- rent you can rent a, a, a Ostende on Prime. O S T E N D E. As well, you should. On, on Amazon. Uh, it's a very good film. It's only like 80 minutes. As contrasted with Strange Lokens, uh four and a half hour runtime. Um, yeah. Lest anyone be intimidated by that, it's a two part film. So you can very easily watch one part one time, next part the next night, or the following weekend, like whatever you like. Um, not too necessary to watch it all in one sitting though. It, I think it would be beneficial if you could. Um, so Laura Paredes plays a woman who at the start of the film has gone missing. And these two guys, um, Ezekiel and Raphael um, are looking for her. And we gradually find out that the two of them are linked to different parts of her life. Um, Ezekiel is a coworker of hers. Raphael is her boyfriend. Um, but also the two it, within those two separate roles, they've also had things to do with her personal life and with her professional life. Um, even though they're on paper fulfilling the roles in distinct worlds, those two worlds have uh, mixed together for Laura. Um, and it takes some time before we get to any real scenes with Laura herself. And it takes some time for her to gradually become kind of emerge as the main character instead of just the main subject. Um what we find out is that she had uh, checked a library book out of the library and found within it a uh, love note, essentially, um, that was meant for somebody else who had the book at the time, one supposes. And she just kind of becomes fascinated with this note and keeps diving further and further into the person who wrote it, who they're writing it to, what their lives look like and everything else. So it's about two guys who are investigating the disappearance of a woman who in turn was investigating some other people who are strangers to her. And the whole film, first of all, is incredibly engaging. Um, despite its four and a half hour runtime, it 
for me anyway, flew by and, um, I saw it at AFI Fest last November and my memory at the time is that I was stressed about work or something. I remember in general over that weekend feeling like I wouldn't have the mental energy to devote to the motion pictures the way I would like uh, and having zero trouble getting wrapped up in this one. Um, it kind of very quickly hit for me and very quickly got me involved and um, is very funny in the way that I think people who are at least loosely familiar with contemporary Argentinian cinema will recognize. Certainly if you saw La Flor, the sense of humor is very similar. Um, where this cut above La Flor for me and why I think it might be the best Argentinian film I've seen um, is that it's not only about, you know, the pleasure of storytelling and the effect that stories have on our lives or whatever. It's really about um the strange human impulse to get wrapped up in other people's lives and to ascribe meaning to those lives that we cannot picture and how difficult it is to really know anyone else. So for the two guys looking for Laura, they think they're very close to her, but are discovering this whole world um, that they weren't really privy to and which doesn't really concern them. And so it's also conversely or really relatedly about kind of the masculine, I think especially masculine, but especially when you're in any kind of romantic uh, entanglement with somebody else to assume that everything they do is somehow about you. <laughs> um, the reasons Laura has gone missing and departed has nothing to do with these two guys and um, the extent to which she wants them to look for her is very much up in the air right up through the end. And I think kind of remains a bit of a mystery and a bit of an ambiguous note throughout the film. Um, and then conversely, like Laura is looking for these people who she doesn't know at all and is wrapped up in their lives and is trying to give meaning to her own life through theirs. And that is in and of itself, not necessarily an empty pursuit, but certainly a big gamble to assume that whatever she finds out will fill a big gap that she senses in her life. Um, there are innumerable small details that are worth obsessing over within this film. It's incredibly well put together. Um, Citarella and Paredes actually wrote the film together um, and it reflects a great deal of thought put into it. Um, and I'm not sure how long they've been working on it. Ostende was 12 years ago. I think they made that. Um, and Laura Citarella has contributed in various capacities to other Argentinian films since then. This is her first directed film since then and reflects, I mean, again, I don't know if they worked on this whole time, but it reflects 12 years of thought. It's a pretty significant mm. piece of work and pretty significantly, uh, thought through and expressed. And um, despite its runtime, I've been looking for an excuse to try to see it again. It had been showing at the Lumiere Cinema for several months, but only on like Sunday afternoons because of its runtime. So it's been tough to see again. But as soon as it's available digitally, I will absolutely be doing so because I was just so, so, so enraptured by it. All right, we're on to my number one, and I'm going to surprise no one. I'm going to be very basic here and pick um, Celine Song's Past Lives as my sure. best film of 2023 so far. Um, uh, Celine Song is a playwright, as is Greta Lee's character in the movie, as I remember correctly. It's been since January since I saw it, but that's what I remember. Um, and this yes. is her directorial... Yeah, okay. This is her directorial debut uh and yeah i i i feel like when someone comes from 
the theater or when a play comes is adapted into film or someone comes from the theater it there's a worry that it's going to go one of two ways either it's going to be very like boring cinematically or they're going to try and overcompensate by film by making it too overstuffed and too uh let's do things we can't do and add a bunch of locations and stuff things we couldn't do in the theater um there's an incredible like patience and maturity and sophistication i think to the the execution of um past lives and it's sort of visual um and editorial sort of rhythm and and cadence um yeah it's very patient uh i will give some of the credit to uh cinematographer shabby shabby a kirshner who um was uh uh, Steve McQueen's collaborator on all five small acts hmm. uh, uh, films um, shot this. Uh, and then also, since I'm, you know, going back, to, I mean, I mentioned Woody Allen, since we're talking about canceled directors today, <laughs> I'll talk about something that Joss Whedon once said about like casting people who are good at comedy, because that's the hard one. Um, uh, and Greta Lee is someone who very much comes from the world of comedy. I know her from, high maintenance and girls and inside Amy Schumer. And, and it's, it's, um, uh, she is an actor that I associate with comedy in here. Like, um, not that there aren't, you know, the movie's very human. And so there are moments of very human sort of comedy in it, but, um, this is not a movie. You wouldn't describe the movie as, as a, as a comedy. It's a movie about a, uh, Korean born woman who, whose family immigrated to Canada. And then by, by, by the time we catch up with her, she's an adult artist living and working in New York with her, uh, white husband. Uh, and then her boyhood or childhood friend from Korea, um, comes to visit New York city and, and they spend time together. And, uh, you know, I guess in a superficial sense, maybe they're sort of a, like, romantic spark but it's also a movie that's ruminating on all the yeah i mean it's called past lives for a reason every like all the different possibilities that we leave behind by making one decision or another and um the it it seems to present this idea almost of time travel but in a sense in a way where you can only look at the past and you can't interact with it. And so there's a yearning and a bittersweetness uh, to it. Um, and uh, there's a scene, a very quiet scene late in the movie at a bar um, where the uh, Teo Yu, Yu is the actor. Uh, Hei Sung is the character. Hei Sung and Greta Lee and her husband, played by John McGarrow, an actor I also like, um, are just at a bar together after having had dinner um and it uh is maybe my favorite scene in any movie in 2023 so mm -hmm. far uh you saw it right i did um i think i had an interesting experience with it because it, it was so uh beloved out of sundance um i was having trouble latching into its rhythms because it cuts through a lot of time very quickly and then kind of settles on a specific moment to go mm -hmm. from. Um, so I was having trouble settling in Zoot's rhythms and then like quite suddenly the ending really hit like a ton of bricks. 
And so I kind of want to go back and watch it again because I'm like, clearly something was working for me much more so than I was necessarily giving the film credit for in the course of its running. Um, So I do think it's really masterfully directed and especially for it's her debut film, right? Um, Yeah. Yeah. Especially for a debut. um, It carries, it definitely carries a sense of longing, even when in its choppier parts Um, and that all worked pretty well. There's some elements of the performances that I had maybe some struggles with. You know, I, I think there's some moments where it fits John Magaro into a position where I understand why people in the theater I was in were laughing at him um, because he's kind of like put in an almost kind of pathetic position of like being the third wheel in his own marriage kind of thing, um, yeah. which I think the film is mostly pretty smart about, but sometimes it felt like it didn't quite know what to do with them. Um, so again, it's one that I hope to have a chance to revisit because I don't really think these doubts or issues I had with it held me back from held it back from really moving me. It's just that I thought about them in the moment and so I've kind of held on to them. Yeah. Um, this is one of those, I think very positive Sundance stories where like going into Sundance, I don't think, my recollection is this was not talked about as one right. to watch. In in fact, uh, so just to talk shop or whatever, um, the post COVID, the Sundance, like, uh, press passes have worked differently. So like the level that I'm at now, uh, I don't get any public tickets. I only get to see press and industry screenings, whereas I used to get an allotment of public tickets, but you can always just ask publicists for public tickets, right? you know? And so I ended up going to a few of uh, of those and past lives was a pretty easy one to get tickets for at the average premiere mm-hmm. at the Eccles. It was, it was, that was not a difficult one to, to, to get tickets for. And then as the like credits started to roll and I tuned into the chorus of sniffles around me, I realized even before the lights had come up, I was like, this is people are loving this. Yeah. <laughs> this is going to be a big, a big story. And, and, and it was, uh so yeah we did it we talked about our top five right on um, do we want to do some uh quick honorable mentions i'm gonna do here's what i'm gonna do i'm gonna do four honorable mentions but real right. quick but i'm gonna do two that are legitimately 2023 movies okay. and two that are movies that came out in america in 2023 uh so i'm gonna talk about a little scene and little discussed i guess um chinese film called stonewalling uh which is um directed by someone named oh it's two people uh oh i think it's a married couple ji huang and ryuji otsaku uh and it is a two and a half hour movie that i guess the baseline of the story is that it's about a young woman who gets pregnant um you know out of wedlock or whatever um and does not want to have an abortion and so it's about her going through the process of of um adoption of of um i'm not sure what the right term is but it but it also uses that long the period of a pregnancy um to just be an overview of this family over time and um the way that normal people interact with i mean i think it's one of those movies that's probably i think it's critical of china 
but uh of Chinese society, but in a way that's like not overt enough to be like overly yeah. censored. But um there's a lot of like black market type of stuff going on and um and and people taking advantage of one another. Uh and also COVID happens like in the middle of the movie. Mm. And so we see like her family own a store selling, I can't remember what, but they pivot to just like buying a bunch of like masks and hand sanitizer and stuff. Right. And that's what they, that's what they sell now. Um, which is like, so they're kind of complicit in like the black market and profiting off of other people as well. Uh, anyway, I went on too long, but uh, stone along is very good. My other one that's 2022 uh, played, played TIFF last year, but it, I didn't get to see it. Uh, Daniel Goldhaber's how to blow up a pipeline, which I think um, I'm going to say will, if we're still doing battleship retention and if the world still exists at the end of 2029, um, how to blow up a pipeline might very well make my list of the 10 best films of the decade. Really? Uh, yes. I was um, completely riveted by it and invigorated by its um, energy, but complete lack of uh, conservative moralizing about what these people are, are doing. The latter part uh, is definitely the part I like the most about it. Yeah. And also uh, uh, your friend and mine, friend of this podcast, Sean Ingram, he texted me after he saw the movie. Um, so I can't know exactly what he said, but he said, so Sasha Lane is on a one masterpiece, a decade trajectory, <laughs> which is not bad. Um, so yeah, those are my two 2022 ones. And then my two 2020, like legit premiered and released 2023 um uh honorable mentions polite society was the most pleasant surprise uh I still need to see for it. me i really want to yeah I, I i think i saw like oh it's a family drama being expressed via martial arts tropes i was like this is going to be another like cutesy full of itself everything everywhere all at once type thing but it's much more like the edgar wright cornetto trilogy uh type of things where it's um it's always real it's often very funny the characters are flawed um and not flawed in the like point making way of everything everywhere all at once like they're actually just like messy people it's got great performances great action uh and then my final honorable mention uh and you can find it on shutter if you have shutter uh ted gagan's brooklyn 45 which is a a uh, low budget sort of uh, locked room horror movie period piece in which a bunch of uh, World War II vets, uh, high ranking World War II vets come together a year after the war at Christmas time to see one another again. But uh, shortly after they arrive, their host, the retired general played by Larry Fessenden, which is how, you know, if, you, if you're watching an indie movie, indie horror movie and Larry Fessenden's in it, you made the right choice. Um, his imprimatur is uh, uh uh, not um taken lightly uh he reveals that actually the reason i've gathered you all here is i want to do a seance to con to contact my late wife and they do and things go horribly awry and uh i think it ends up being a movie kind of uh i was definitely put in mind of the hateful eight uh in terms of it being mm. about like a bunch of americans or some characters maybe not american or or not american born uh immigrants uh in there um uh locked in a room together and and uh forced to uh spell out what they think america is but it's not in like it's not a what's what i'm looking for it's not strident it's not a polemic. yeah 
yeah, yeah. It's, it's a, it, it's a, it's a kick-ass little slow burn and a, a slow burn horror movie that occasionally has explosions of gore that I'm not going to sure. uh, uh, expand upon, but uh, yeah, Brooklyn 45 and other like really pleasant surprise for me. All right. Honorable mentions for you. Yeah. Um, all of these pretty narrowly missed my list. I think the only one that had a longer shot was blue jean, um, which is really good. Um, story of a woman who's a closeted gay woman in the late eighties in the UK where they just enacted some extremely strict, um, essentially don't say gay kind of laws. Um, very, very good look at the time. Not at all. I mean, nostalgic is a real weird word to potentially use for a woman, a movie about harsh, uh, gay oppression, but, um, yeah. even the most, like you've seen this before where even the most kind of downbeat movie can be nostalgic for a period. It, it's just very naturalistic. You could almost, uh, mistake it for a film shot in that period as a great, great mm. lead performance. Um, RMN Christian Monju's latest film yep. is really, really good and just as masterfully done as anything he's made before with an extra air of mystery and potentially surreality that I found very intriguing, um, and which I'm still kind of wrapping my head around, but which has really stuck with me. Um, Kelly Rickert showing up, um, her latest collaboration with Michelle Williams is another one that I really want to see again, not because I didn't like it, although I, I did watch it like, I think three days after getting laid off. So I was not really in the best like headspace. Um, but sure. it's still, yeah. it still hit pretty hard. Um, but it's also like, I mean, even for Kelly Reichardt, a very slight movie in the way of like, nothing really changes throughout the movie, but there are these small shifts, which are the kind of movies that I tend to really like and really did like it here, but which is just kind of full of small details. It's hard to say like, what are the small details that are really affecting the course of the story? So I'd like to watch it again, kind of with its trajectory more in mind. It honestly kind of felt like an expansion tonally of the Michelle Williams section of certain women, which has become mm. now like my favorite section of that movie, even though mm -hmm. at first glance, it appears to be the slightest. It has mm -hmm. so much going on in the kind of the little crevices and in between parts. And that's like a lot of what showing up is, is all these kind of like tiny things adding up. And it's also weirdly like the funniest Kelly Rickard movie so far, which is not like, we don't really think of her as a big comedy director and it's not like it's an out and out laugh fest, but it is really sharp and um, has a great sense of uh, the city of Portland, which I definitely appreciate. Hmm. Um, one that came probably the closest to getting my list, um, a thousand and one, which is a really great yeah. um, parental melodrama that um, itself takes some pretty big swings. I would say narratively and, lands uh way more of them than i would expect given the basic description of it which could definitely make it seem overstuffed and way too much but it, it really captured them all and especially through the lead performance of i think tiana taylor's name i know she's a famous tiana singer taylor, yeah. who i should be more familiar with but i'm not that hip um but she's so so good in the movie and um hope that this uh pretends to more acting credits in her future and then, uh, lastly, I got to admit, I, again, we, we talked about this before. I know I she's been in movies, movie but I'm TV. saying like more. She's been in movies and TV. She has 59 credits on IMDb. Was it that it's, many? I thought it was much further than that. All right. Yeah. I think this is just like us showing our like bubble that like, she seems like a new discovery to us. Cause she's hasn't been in things that like 
white art house goers go to see but isn't it just still like, like her first coming like, to role? america and oh maybe it might be so i guess that's what I'm, i have in mind is like yeah yeah more big meaty stuff yeah um, also i'm looking a lot of the okay it says 59 credits a lot of these are her music, music videos. videos that yeah. does that doesn't really count yeah i was gonna say i thought her credits were like 10 so you were using 59 yeah. i was like okay maybe i'm just completely lost it but uh well it's somewhere in between 10 and 59 all right <laughs> sounds good um and then lastly i got i gotta admit i loved spider-man across the spider-verse um okay. it is gorgeously rendered and um hits kind of my bare minimum of threshold of like the superhero movies like is it romantic and does it have a great female character in it it has both of those things and does them so well and is so visually enveloping that uh, i saw it twice in theaters and just soaked it in both times uh yeah another one i i tried to see but um just Alas. been too busy been too busy all right well uh this has been fun we'll do a much longer version of this at the well not at the end of the year next march i think uh, yeah. and we'll do our actual top 10 of 2023 but uh it's uh it's it's fun to to pay to to highlight the good movies that come out in the first half of the year yeah that absolutely often often get forgotten um you know, by, by the time of, uh, award season, what do you think is most likely to be an awards contender that has already come out? Is it past lives? I would say so. Um, okay. that seems like one that really kind of landed and stuck around. Um, I'm trying to think of what else that maybe isn't on my list, but which is kind of landed with more of a hit i mean i was kind of i guess i was surprised okay, that a thousand one... <laughs> yeah definitely uh i was surprised that a thousand one didn't land bigger because it feels like the kind yeah. of movie that should have um yeah. yeah but oh blackberry i think will hit with a lot of critics prizes especially for the okay. script um master okay. gardener has a lot of strong admirers so i think i think critics groups will still latch on to it oh asteroid city i think it seems like it's okay. really and it's a big box office hit for that scale of movie so um yeah i wouldn't be yeah. surprised if that stuck around and um, yet you'll be able to rent it on vod in less than a week i know I, I don't get it makes yeah, no sense very to strange me. choice very strange choice all right well um this has been great uh you can find reviews of some of these movies i guess at battleshipretention.com you can uh Check out the GoFundMe, I mean, like I said. Um, follow me on Twitter at Davey Pretension. Um, check out my other podcast, the one where I met your mother, where my wife Natalie and I watch an episode of Friends and an episode of How I Met Your Mother. Met your mother every week. Um, we just passed episode 100 of uh, How I Met Your Mother, which means we've done more than 100 episodes of the podcast at this point. Nice. Uh, but... Um, uh yeah so that's where you can find me oh yeah davy uh david david at battleshipretention.com is my email scott where do you want people to track you down uh twitter rail of tomorrow letterbox my name scott and i and on blue sky uh i, I guess like it's not really like at rail of tomorrow i guess it is i'm sure if you search for scott and i or rail of tomorrow it'll come up um yeah, yeah. and not on threads and then i will if somehow Twitter and blue sky fall and it's only left with threads, I will simply have no app like Twitter. 
Um, I have zero interest in joining up threads. It will never happen. I joined threads just to post one post. <laughs> okay. Make your mark. Yeah. Uh, and people can look at it if they, uh, if they want. Um, anyway, uh, that's it. Um, Great. thanks for listening and we'll get you next time. Bye. Bye.